Hello, Jeroen. Hello, Dylan. Today, after 35 episodes, we talk about Elm Pages again. After 35 episodes, and actually after uh, our first episode was about Elm Pages 1.0, and about a year ago, actually a little bit over a year ago now, and um, the last I checked, episode one is actually our most downloaded episode. Oh, that's not true. Oh, no, it changed. Yeah, I think you might be right. Yeah. I think you did some good marketing recently. (laughs) Maybe, I must have. Let's double check. Oh, yes. So Evan's open source episode that we recorded with Evan Chaplicki is number one, but number two, getting started with Elm Pages, our first episode. Yep. <laughs> and Elm UI is one download below. <laughs> That's true. So it, it's, yeah. uh, it's a very frail, very fragile number That's two true. spot. That's true. You can, uh, you can place your vote by listening to one of those two episodes. <laughs> But if you're listening to this episode, well, it, it kind of counts towards Elm pages. So if you want to well, support Elm UI, then you should stop listening. <laughs> yeah, right? that's true. That's true. Although you still downloaded it. So we're looking at download counts. Ah, that's true. Yeah, you're, you, can, you can't do anything anymore. Yeah, sorry. Just share Elm UI more. Yeah. Or share Elm pages right. more. <laughs> that's share right. this episode. So I listened, I actually listened back to the original Elm Pages episode a little while back to um, just sort of like look at, at, you know, take stock of where things have gone and compared to what's changed with 2.0. And um, actually our our 1.0 episode, not to uh, try to gamify the system of getting more downloads there or anything, but it's still relevant. (laughs) We talked a lot about just kind of Jamstack concepts and and why that's an interesting fit with Elm. But the architecture with 2.0 has changed dramatically. So I think we'll, right. we'll get into some of the details there, which I, I think are very interesting. All right. Maybe let's start with just saying uh, what Elm Pages is, because yeah. some people may not be aware. Uh, right. they, may, they might be rushing towards the Elm Pages 1 uh, episode, but let's, mm-hmm. uh, let's redefine it here. So, Dylan, what is Elm Pages? Okay. So at its core... Elm Pages is a, a platform for pulling in data and pre-rendering it to a set of static pages that you can deploy with a, a CDN like Netlify, for example. So what I mean by pulling in data is there's this concept in Elm Pages 1.0, it was called static HTTP data, meaning that you could pull in data from APIs and have it there when your page pre-rendered. When you built your application when you build your application and it outputs for your blog posts it outputs an html page for each of those um, etc etc for all the different pages so you could pull in data from uh, for example for the elmradio.com website what that does it's an elm pages application and it actually uses the simplecast api which is um, our sort of hosting provider for um, for the audio and we use API calls from Simplecast and fetch metadata about where the MP3s are hosted and actually some, some other metadata about the um, size of the files and stuff that, that the RSS feed needs. Generate an RSS feed, all using pure Elm code. Generate the, uh, the pages for each episode. Um, and it's using API data, and that's available at the pre-rendered HTML. And it's also available when your Elm application hydrates. So it loads the HTML, which has been pre-rendered. If you have something like 
Twitter or Slack, basically scraping to get those uh, nice social previews, um, they're going to be able to get that because it's pre-rendered. So the core idea is that like to get those nice social previews and stuff, sometimes you need data from different sources. And Elm Pages gives you the ability to get that data before init even runs in your Elm application. So for pre-rendering, just to clarify, so you said that it generates a lot of HTML files and RSS files, mm -hmm. or, and I'm guessing kind of whatever uh, that you wish for. Exactly. It's just it. Um, it doesn't specifically generate anything except what you define, including RSS feeds and all of that. That's you know some Elm code that you write to output a string to a file path, and when you run your build, it it generates that. All right, but. Um, so you generate uh, HTML files, but you also generate uh, JS files. So you yeah. it's not just static files and static contents. It is also yes. like just regular Elm applications yeah, that you can interact exactly. with uh, just the way you're used to with Elm. Exactly right. Yeah, you, you have a full-fledged Elm application once the page loads um, that starts by you know loading the uh, pre-rendered HTML, and that's available for for social media previews that need to scrape that. Um, but then you get a full Elm application. And in fact, it, um, it takes over and does single page app navigations from there when you, when you load a new page. So it's not fetching HTML to go to a new page. It's running as a continuous Elm application. Yeah, so it's downloading the, the HTML file, it renders it. Mm -hmm. And then when, when you say it hydrates, it replaces all of that by a native Elm application. Exactly. And when you transition between pages, um, you can even have a shared model, um, exactly like Elm SPA. And th that design was inspired by Elm SPA's design there. And that shared model will, will persist as you do page changes, because it's a continuous single page application from, from there. And so for this um, sort of, th so there's a different life cycle for Elm pages where there's a build step. Uh, normally Elm pages, uh, normally Elm applications don't have a build step, but Elm Pages gives you a build step. So you get this pre-init. So when you um, when it pre-renders a page, it calls init for that page, but it does not call update. So it renders the initial initted version of any given page. And that's what will be rendered in or sent to that HTML file that will be yes. pre-rendered. Okay. Exactly right. But before init even happens, Elm Pages is going to resolve your data sources. So the data sources could be in Elm Pages 2.0, it can be not only an HTTP data source. So you could do like, for example, for the listing page for, um, for the Elm Radio website, uh, it goes and fetches an API request to get all the listing of all episodes. And then for each of those, it makes a follow-up HTTP request. So you can do um, data source dot and then, and you can do follow up data source requests from that initial data that you got. So it opens up all sorts of um, possibilities, and that that will be resolved by the Elm Pages platform before init is called and your page is pre rendered at your build step or in the dev server. So all of the data is fetched and then condensed somehow into one big giant data structure or multiple. I don't know yet. We'll go into mm -hmm. that later. Mm -hmm. And that will be potentially available to the pages init function. That's right. You can pull it in. You can use it in init. 
update and you also have that data in your view um, as well as in your in your head function which is where you can kind of put your seo meta tags to say the twitter card previews or json ld structured data you know you can pull in all sorts of metadata but you have access to the resolved data sources when you render those so what is the benefit of having that build step right so one of my one of my favorite benefits from from having like a pre-rendered elm site is that so we've we've talked about the idea of parse don't validate a lot which is like you know one of my one, one of my favorite kind of design principles that i i think about often and with elm pages because there's a build step so you can like parse don't validate with a subsection of your data in your elm app you can parse don't validate for a model for a page. So you can say, hey, when I go to this page, I need, uh, I need to have this data. Um, but if something's wrong with the data and I do, you know, I do this parsing, then I can parse it into something that could potentially fail, right? That's sort of what parse means. So um, that's a really powerful pattern. But you have all these states in your application. You try to sort of pull them to the top so you don't have shotgun surgery, checking for things repeatedly and having, you know, not knowing if you have a, a good state all over your code. So that's when you're actually doing that logic, you have the data that you need and you don't need to do any branching anymore. Exactly. But you do need to branch at least at the top level because mm -hmm. uh, you, you can't guarantee that um, things will be in a good state. So you need to check it at some point at runtime. But when you have a build step, you can actually parse don't validate and turn that those two tracks of the success track and the fail track, you can turn the fail track into a build failure. So you can parse it into either a, a build failure, which will give you an, a nice error message when you run Elm Pages build, or if you're in the Elm Pages dev server when you're on that page, it'll even hot reload um, as you change your code and as you change um, you know, files that it might depend on like mark, uh, markdown files that it might depend on, it will tell you that there's a problem. So for like, let's take an example. So we haven't mentioned yet, but data sources can, um, in Elm Pages 2.0, can include a file data source. So you could read like a markdown file. So if you wanted to ensure that you have a title, you know, you could, you could either extract the title by parsing the markdown and checking that it has an H1 tag, or you could get the title from um, like front matter, like a little YAML thing between the um, triple dashes. That's called front matter at the top of Markdown files. Um, so you can you can access those using um, uh, using the data source file module in Elm Pages 2.0, and you can fail if um, so. So you can do data source fail, um, or you can pass in a decoder to this this front matter data source. And if the decoder fails, or if you were to call data source.fail or decode.fail or whatever, at any point, that turns into a build failure. So you don't have, data sources don't give you a result that may have an error. Um, they give you a build error, and you run that build. And if the build succeeded, that's the OK version. If it didn't succeed, that's the error version. And you get that in your dev server or in your build step. So that, I think, is huge because you know, we love guarantees and we do. there's no way for Elm to guarantee 
that all your data is valid and that all your HTTP requests succeed and um, that the server is available and well-behaved and gives you a good response. Or even, you know, a, a REST API may return HTML for some reason. And you don't know until you do it. But since Elm Pages has a build step, you actually do it. So you do know before your site goes live. So you can parse don't validate at build time, not at runtime with some of these bits of data that you pull in during the build step. Yeah. So uh, with the example of the, the blog with a title and a description, if one markdown file doesn't have a title, yes, you will get a build failure. If you, exactly. If you requested that one would be required. Yes. So exactly you, you, can, right. you can just write your markdown file if it doesn't have a title because you forgot to write one, you have a build failure. And in your code, which does all the rendering, which does all the logic, you can just go ahead and say, okay, I have a title. Exactly. And otherwise exactly. you will have an Elm compiler error. Yeah, exactly. So you get the, the nice benefits of parse don't validate, turning it into the nice data type that you want that represents that everything uh, went well, but you don't even have to worry about the failure case. And this is actually like, it's a very nice workflow as well when uh so like it sort of changed my workflow where if i depend on some api data you know um like if if i'm pulling in a listing of items from like a content management system cms or you know whatever it may be my process has changed where i'll start by doing an http data source and then i'll do um a decode.fail and what that's going to do so let's Take an example. Let's say we're building a blog, but the blog is hosted with a with a content management system. So we're using an API to get a listing of all blog posts. So so we want to create a, a blog index page. So I would start by making the request to that API, and then I would just do decode.fail. And what's going to happen then is when you're looking at that blog index page in your browser with the Elm Pages dev server running, it's um, it's going to tell you, um, hey, I got this HTTP data, but the decoder failed. Mm -hmm. And here's the JSON data. Oh. And if you think about what you would have to do to get that workflow in a in a vanilla Elm application, there are a lot of steps involved. So you would have to you would have to say in init, here's an HTTP request to perform. Uh, Here's a message to to call back to you know when you receive the HTTP response. In the update function, you have a clause to handle that message. You have something in your model that tells you that you've got that response. Oh, and by the way, uh, it's going to need to. You probably want to wrap that with a remote data type because it could be loading or could be an error. And then, well, you're going to need to handle all of those different loading and error and success states in your view. Um, if there's an error state, you're going to have to turn that error into a nice printable string. And don't forget to like wrap it in a pre-tag so you can like debug it in real time. Uh, and now you can go do that process if you didn't miss any steps along mm -hmm. the way there. Easy peasy. We're used to it, I guess, but it's still right. a lot of work. So that's I've just become addicted to this process now <laughs> with Elm Pages of this life cycle where I just say, uh, so So the way a data source is wired in is you have these page modules. So you would have something called uh, like source slash page slash blog dot Elm, and that would map to the slash blog route in your app. 
And that's going to have a, a top level value. So just like you have init update subscriptions, you're going to have data. And that data is just going to be a data source. And so for the data source, we would do, you know, data source.http.get. We'd write our data would be the contents of the, the result of the data source. Uh, data would be representing the data source of what you're going to fetch. Okay. So yeah. that's what uh, that's what data is. And then in your view init update, um, if you have those, you can you can do it just with a, with a, with a view. Uh, you don't need an update function, but um, you you get that data. So whatever type your data is, um, there's a um, so you're going to have a type alias data. Uh, often it'll be like a record. Could be a custom type if you want it to. Uh, but you're going to have some type called data with a capital D, and you're going to have a top-level value called data with a lowercase d. And that uh, lowercase d data is where you define your um, your data source of what you're going to fetch. And the uh, and the top uh, the capital D data is the data type you're going to get back. So of course, if you you know if you're adding uh, more bits of data that you're expecting to receive, that data type is going to change. You add fields to the record or whatever it may be, but there's no message. There's no update clause. There's no case statement checking whether it's loading or error or or whatever. So that workflow feels so nice to just say, you know, data equals datasource.http.get, give it your URL. And, uh, and then in your view function, you're just like, oh, here's the, here's the data I asked for. It's, it's just there. Or if it's not there, the dev server or the build command are telling you, I tried to make this HTTP request and something went wrong. Yeah. So earlier you said that whatever is uh, returned by the init will be rendered, well, I guess, by yes, uh, by being called by the view function. Mm-hmm. My yep. mental model was like, okay, so the init function returns a temporary model until something has been loaded because you still need to, to do all the fetch commands, handle the update, and in the view render an intermediate state and then the render state, but you would pre-render the intermediate state. But with Elm Pages, you would actually render the completed view for the completed data. So you render more than what you would get with a normal Elm application. Exactly, because the Elm Mm -hmm. Pages platform gives you this core concept of a data source that it's a declarative way to describe the data your page depends on statically. Now, um, you still have init and update, which can perform commands. And if you wanted to get real-time data, you can do that in those places with regular HTTP. But the Elm Pages platform takes care of all the details of resolving that before your init or view function gets called for the first time. That's just part of um, the platform. And so, so yeah, you don't, uh, I think of it as just declaratively describing data rather than like imperatively saying, go and do this. Here's the intermediary model state along the way. As you get up this data, you get, you know, or, you know, it's, it's a lot more like just defining a task and resolving it. And you can pull in all the data you need. And once that's all resolved, you just have that data available. So uh, at the beginning, you mentioned that Elm pages will build a set of HTML files and JavaScript files and whatever. And those are already have all the content that they need, as we've seen now. And you deploy this to a CDN. So that means that if your um, CMS is down, 
the server is down for, for, because of an outage or something, then you, you can't build because all those HTTP requests will fail. But if at some point you have failed, uh, you have built, and the CMS mm-hmm. is down, but the yes, the right. um, pages application is released and deployed. Yes, then you don't need to de- uh, depend on the CMS, and everything is smooth, even exactly. though the CMS is down. Exactly, that's right. And so, like, I think one of the things people people sometimes wonder about, you know, data sources and that sort of thing. I mean, it, um, you know, we've kind of talked about how it's convenient, but then what about like, you know, wait a minute. So you're fetching this data at the build step, but then I have, I have to make sure I get that data before I load a page because it's hydrating an Elm application, right? So that seems a little odd. And, and that's true. You do need to, um, you do need to get that data. So like if, if, um, you go to the, uh, the root page, it gives you the pre-rendered HTML, Everything loads up. It hydrates into an Elm single page application. And then you click to the blog page, right? And now all of that data that you gathered to to get the listing of all of your blog posts from your CMS, where does that come from? Because it's a single page Elm application. So is it hitting your CMS or what is it doing? As you said, it's not hitting the CMS, which means that even if the CMS were to go down, that page of the listing of blog posts would still be there. Yeah, I, I guess you could still request from the CMS new data, but you would have to do that manually uh, yourself. You don't have to. That's right. Yeah, exactly. If you wanted to, for some reason, um, with a CMS, in, in most cases, you're probably going to be using data sources to get that data. But but absolutely, in some cases, you might want real-time data to check if a live stream is ongoing on Twitch right now or to get the number of likes on a blog post or something like that. So the CMS gives you that data from the in the data source. The data source gets that data and that data ends up in a JSON file. And so all of the data that that uh, blog index page depended on ends up in this JSON file. And Elm Pages, what it does is it fetches that JSON file for you before it goes to that page. So, so it get and if you hover over a link, you can look in your network tab and you can see when you hover over a link that it's going to go and fetch the data that it needs because it usually takes between one to 200 milliseconds to um, between the time your your cursor enters the region of a link and the time you click it because you usually don't click it at the far edge. You click it towards the middle and humans are slow. Even if you try to click it fast, you're probably not going to do it faster than 100 milliseconds. And it turns out that's actually like enough lead time to, in most cases, make it feel pretty instantaneous to have that data available so that when when uh, the user clicks on the page, it's ready and it does the single page transition quickly. So do you have a JSON file for the whole application or for each page? It's split each by page. page. Yeah, exactly. Page. Yeah, it's split out by each page. So it lazy loads as needed for a page. When you go to that page, it gets the data it needs. Is that the only data that is being fetched? No more JS, no more CSS? It, it is. And I mean, I would love to, to have like code splitting, but uh, there are some reasons that I can't really do that because the way the Elm compiler works, it would... Um, I saw this as a, as a, as a good side. <laughs> I wasn't like, oh, it should split it up. No, well, I was like... It would it's be only cool. fetching JSON. 
<laughs> it would be cool. I would love to be able to do the um, to do the code splitting feature, but there are some limitations that I can't really hack it. But I would love if that feature were something I could make use of in the future. But for now, I mean, the bundle sizes are are pretty reasonable, so that's okay. But yeah, it only fetches that uh, JSON file, and then now the reason I think it, it might seem strange at first, right? Because like, wait a minute. So it's still making these HTTP requests, right? So what's the point? Besides the sort of convenience and, you know, having this data available at pre-render, which we talked about, I think there's an additional benefit, which is kind of like you were hinting at, if your CMS is down, your site is still up. But what if the HTTP request fails to get that JSON file that it needs for your data sources for that page? Mm-hmm. Because that one is also hosted somewhere that can go down. Mm-hmm. It's hosted somewhere that could go down. But guess what? So is the rest of your application. So the uptime characteristic characteristics, they're going to be tightly linked together. So if you're, the odds are if you're seeing a page, you're going to be able to get that data. And also you're hosting it on a CDN, whatever that stands for, content delivery network, something like that. Cloud delivery? Yeah, maybe content delivery network. So the idea of a CDN is that you have dumb hosting where it's just giving you files. It's not going through the complication of talking to a server and that server is handling multiple requests and it uh, has your application logic and it has to go read something from a database. It's just, here's a file, here you go. And in fact, since it's so simple, it's just reading files, why don't we distribute those files across a lot of networks across the world? So we can serve it to you from the closest network. So if you're in Japan, we're not going to serve it to you from the East Coast of America and vice versa. We can serve it up from the nearest data centers because it's just literally giving you a file that's on the disk. So it can do that extremely efficiently. That's like serving from the edge. So anyway, there there are benefits to that. Not to mention that you can do data source dot and then. So you can get the listing of all of these things and then you can go get follow-up HTTP requests for each of those. And that data is all kind of aggregated into this JSON file. So even though you wrote and then and did all these follow-on requests, when it builds it, it's all just there. So it just goes and grabs it. It doesn't need to wait for that waterfall of requests. So um, so I think that's pretty cool. Also, um, the uh, so Elm Pages, you will probably notice if you if you play around with Elm Pages that there's this um, module called Optimized Decoder. So Ilias did some incredible work on that. Uh, yeah, Ilias von Pier. Is he Dutch? Uh, I think anyway. he's from Belgium. Oh, cool. Okay. Or he's Dutch and he's work, uh Well, I'll leave either. the correct pronunciation to you. But uh, but yeah, so I don't remember if we told this story the last time uh, we talked about Elm Pages. But yeah, I I, um, I saw Ilias's JSON decode exploration package and noticed that it it can warn you if you have unused JSON data. So if you if you have some JSON in a in a response and you don't consume it, then it it tells you and gives you a warning. And I'm like, that's interesting because I've been thinking it would be really cool to keep track of the JSON that's used and not and strip out the unused JSON data. And I'm I, I was just I just messaged Ilias and said, I wonder if that's possible. And then literally like that same day, he's like, oh, I played around with it and you totally can <laughs> and here it is. Nice. Which I thought was incredible. But yeah, so that's the backbone of the optimized decoder API. So what it does is it um, 
when you're running it at, at build time, it's going to go to the extra effort, which uh, is a little bit more expensive than running a vanilla JSON decoder. It's going to go to the extra effort of keeping track of which JSON data in, in the JSON blob that you've consumed using a decoder. So if you do decode.field decode name, now it knows that that field has been consumed. If you do you know, decode.index1, it knows that array index was consumed, and it actually will null out any data that it didn't need to consume for example. So it's it's pretty sophisticated, uh, although it's also pretty simple, which is why Elm is incredible, because it has this purity. And so you can make these kinds of optimizations. So that's uh, it's doing that work in the build step. In the, in the runtime, when the user is running it in their browser, it just runs a vanilla JSON decoder for the performance. So you don't incur the cost of running that optimized decoder. But it, in the build step, it figures out which JSON fields you used and strips off any unused fields, which is pretty nifty. So that, that comes for yeah. free. It strips out the unused fields from the JSON that you download when you hover a link, when you go to a new page, right? From um, that right. JSON? Or? From, from the JSON in a data source, so which mm-hmm. ends up being that JSON. So, um, and it will actually... Um, uh, it, it will actually merge together. If so, if you made um, if you had a data source doing an HTTP request to the same URL, two different places, and you consumed one field from one of those data sources and another field from the other data source, and you did data source map two and got those two pieces of data together, it's actually going to handle that correctly and just merge it into a single data source with the consumed data. You're, which you're welcome because it was a lot of work. No, no, I mean I did it because I couldn't couldn't help but but build these features because I I get really excited about them. But um, but yeah, it it just it just works as far as you're concerned. But there are all these optimizations happening under the hood. Yeah. So there's one thing that we haven't touched on upon is that data sources are agnostic, right? Yes. To where they came from. Yeah, um, you can have data sources for files, data sources for HTTP, but what you get is a data source of data. And where it came from or how you got it or how it was transformed in the meantime doesn't matter. So you, you can combine things. And if you are, if you have a blog where you have a lot of markdown files and you are migrating them one by one to a CMS, you could... You, you could have uh, one data source for all the files, one data source for the CMS, and then combine them, uh, maybe having one take priority over another, maybe. And But then the rest of the transformation is, uh, we, we don't care where it came from. We, we can keep that data, like, okay, this data source came from HTTP, this one came from files, we can keep that data because we can map, we can end them all those data, but we don't have to care. And exactly. that is pretty nifty. Yeah, I I agree. That's that's my favorite part. I mean that that's my favorite part of Elm Pages. To me, that's that's the heart of Elm Pages is is the the data source concept and the engine of resolving them and optimizing them. But like you say, it's if you have a data source of list of blog posts, that's that's all it is, right? When you're using that, all you care about is that you have a list of blog posts. You don't care where it came from. Elm Pages doesn't care where it came from. It'll take care of resolving and getting the data that, as, as you describe, where you need to fetch it from, from uh, you know grabbing it from files and from CMSs. You can even do datasource.succeed and just get some data in there. As, uh, as our listeners probably know, we, 
we like using succeed. <laughs> because succeed is the key to success. It's the key to success. T-shirts are on the way. Really? <laughs> no, not really. I lied. Uh, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> but they could be. So yeah, that's that's the beauty of it. Yeah, so data sources, some come from files, some come from HTTP. Yes. But once it's run, yes. you, they actually come from JSON files. That's right. That's true. So, exactly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So even like, so when you get uh, front matter using a data source, what it's actually doing is it's, so what what Elm Pages is really doing under the hood is it's sort of like this this runtime for, for, for an Elm build step. And that runtime is using Node.js. So it's using Node.js to read files, right? Elm can't read files. And it reads those files. If you say you want to read a file and you want to read its front matter, what it's doing is it's, um, it's actually uh, parsing that front matter and that YAML into JSON. And then it gives that to you so you can do a JSON decoder. So you don't have to worry about doing YAML parsing or any of that. You just get JSON. And in fact, you can use an optimized JSON decoder because if there's some YAML in the front matter that you don't use, then it's just going to get stripped away if it's an unused fail field. Uh, and so this is one of the really big changes in Elm Pages 2.0 also is that really um, Elm Pages, there's less to it now. It's all just sort of data sources. That's all it is. That's how you read files. That's how you get a listing of files. That's how you um, define routes. That's that's what you do for everything. And, and so if you understand data sources well, then you understand Elm Pages well. That's the one concept that you really need to invest in understanding to understand Elm Pages. Yeah. What I'm imagining is that a lot of the code that you wrote before and it, that you put in init, update, message, and stuff is now put into the data sources. So yeah. like you, you could be a data source expert now. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's right. So uh, like with, with Elm Pages 1.0, there were like a couple of additional concepts. And it's, it's pretty cool because I actually like removed a lot of code going, you know, migrating from, from the 1.0 code base to the, to the 2.0 internals. A lot of code went away. You mean from projects that used Elm Pages or inside Elm Pages? Uh, well, both, but, uh, but I'm speaking about the internals, which I think is really cool because you can do more with it, but the internals are actually less complex because it's just using this concept of a data source to do more things. So does that mean that it's easier for contributors to, to help out? Uh, probably. So, so, <laughs> uh, so one thing that is sort of on my mind for data sources is the idea. So, so we've got, we've got different types of data sources. We've got HTTP data sources, which we've talked about, you you give an HT, you know, you describe an HTTP request to perform and a decoder to use, and you've got that data. You can do a, a file read data source, so you can do data source file, and you can do data source file only front matter and give it a decoder to get the title and description from a blog post, for example. You can do data source file.body without front matter, and it will give you everything but those things between the triple dashes at the top of the file. So you, you, can, you can read in these files. And uh, there's also a data source.glob API, which allows you to depend on data that uh, is just 
describing which files are on the file system. So if you wanted to go to a folder and say, hey, I want, I want a page for every, uh, or you know, do, an, do an index page of blog posts, and instead of being hosted on a CMS, it's local markdown files in your blog folder. And so you could do uh, datasource.glob of, um, you know, of effectively blog slash star dot MD. And then uh, that data source is going to be, you know, a list of strings of those um, of those files. But so uh, basically what what a data source is, is it's a way of having, you know, having this data available for the sort of pre-init phase that it's, it's there on initial render for the pre-rendered HTML. It's there for the head, as we've talked about. But it's really just like, as you said, it's just JSON data. And you can map it all together and you've got, got that data when you go to a new page. One of the things I've been thinking about is a sort of um, having a mechanism for defining custom, essentially like a JavaScript port where you have some JSON data. And if you think about what a port is in Elm, you send JSON out and you receive JSON back through ports. That's what ports are in Elm. That's actually not that different than what a data source is. A data source under the hood is sending JSON to describe, hey, here's, um, here's this file I want to read, or here's this glob pattern. And then it sends back data. And under the hood, it, it is using ports with the Elm Pages runtime, but you don't have to worry about that step. Shh, don't tell anyone. And uh, so, well, what if you could write custom ports and say, hey, when, when this message comes in, just like you write a JavaScript port, send this data back. So maybe you want to say, here's um, an NPM package that I have installed and it, you know, knows information. It's like a database of time zones that conveniently there were a million of them to choose from in NPM and I wanted that. Or I want to run a shell command that generates this SVG image. And so you can take that, that JSON is the input and the output is, you know, conceptually, you're deterministically um, giving the same data for a given input, right? Just like an HTTP request to an API, even if that's technically not true, you have to conceptually think of it as like declaratively representing a single resource. So anyway, that's, that's something on my mind is a sort of using that same data source mechanism as a way to send back JSON data from these sort of JavaScript ports so that you could do things like running shell commands or whatever custom things you needed to do to get that data. Yeah, yeah. The the, the issue with ports is that you are not expected to to get a result always. Just like with HTTP, you're right. expected to get a result at some points. Yeah. But because you have a build step, you could potentially say, okay, if I haven't gotten anything after X seconds, you you make a build failure. Exactly. And you can create an abstraction too, where you say like, hey, here's, um, you know, you're going to get a single port. That port gives you some JSON data and you respond to that JSON data, however you define. So you you have a tag or whatever, you could use Elm TS interop and, um, and, and return, you know, have this contract with yourself that if I get this type of data, I'm going to do this type of thing. And so you could basically have just like an async function that gives back data and it's going to be run at the build step. And once your LMAP is out there being used by a user, it's not doing any of that because it's already resolved it in the content JSON. So we talked about deploying to CDN because mm -hmm. what you build 
gets deployed to your CDN. Can you briefly go about how that works and how complex that is? Sure. Yeah. So you essentially, so Elm Pages 2.0, uh, there's an init command. So you could just do, you know, npx Elm Pages init. If uh, if Elm Pages is, uh, if 2.0 is published by the time this is released, then it would just be npx Elm Pages init. If it's not, then... I believe in you, Dylan. You, you can do it. I believe in me too. Yeah, I've got four weeks. <laughs> you listener know whether he succeeded or not. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, well, I'll I'll put the instructions regardless in, in the show notes. So then you've got uh, a skeleton Elm, app, uh, Elm Pages application. And, uh, you know, if you're deploying it to Netlify, you can NPM install the Netlify CLI and then... Netlify init to get a netlify.toml configuration file that's going to have a command. For the command, I think it npm installs for you. Elm Pages uh, apps are going to require an npm install because because Elm Pages is an npm dependency. And then um, and then you do Elm you know Elm Pages build and it generates the files to a dist folder um, in your Netlify config. You can tell it that the folder to publish is your dist folder, and then you push that up to Netlify and it's going to run Elm Pages build and publish the dist folder. And now you've got an Elm Pages app. Okay. I, I imagine you still need to sign up for Netlify, maybe pay. The free tier is quite generous. So if you're building a yeah. hobby project, chances are you, you won't have to pay. But there are lots of good hosting providers out there. Net, Netlify, I've been very, very happy with. Yeah, that's what I use also for my plugin. And I don't think I've paid anything, except the domain name. All right. So Elm Pages 2.0 is simpler than Elm Pages 1. For the people who are using it already, uh, will the migration be difficult? Or do you have uh, any tips on how to do that? Yeah, that's a good question. So well, so there are a few concepts that maybe we should um, introduce first that we haven't talked about yet. So with Elm Pages 2.0, they're um, so very similar. If you've used Elm SPA, then these patterns are going to feel very familiar. Um, I got a lot of inspiration from Ryan's approach to this. So there is a uh, source slash page folder, page with a capital P. So if you have a uh, page.blog.elm, you know, page.blog module, like, like we described before, it's a file-based router. So page.blog corresponds to slash blog. Page.index corresponds to the root page slash and you can do uh, dynamic uh, route segments and so you could do um, page dot blog dot slug underscore and that would correspond to slash blog slash sometimes they write it as colon slug meaning that it's a dynamic segment that could it's a placeholder could be anything so slash blog slash hello so the way that 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 works first of all um, you can use Elm pages add so you could say Elm Pages add blog with a capital B, and that's going to add source slash page slash blog dot Elm. You could do uh, Elm Pages add blog dot slug underscore, and that's going to give you the uh, the route corresponding to slash blog slash colon slug. So that's that's the first thing to know between Elm Pages 1.0 and 2.0 is that whole setup is different, that there's a file-based router, and so in 1.0, the routes were uh, based on files in your content folder. Usually they were um, markdown files. And uh, so if you had uh, content slash blog slash hello.md, then 
you would get a corresponding route blog slash hello. Yeah, okay. That's what I have in my blog as well. And that is not going to be the case in LPages 2.0. Right. So you can build that functionality using the building blocks with 2.0, or you can do anything else. You could uh, have your blog post coming from a CMS with with uh, 1.0. You couldn't, um, there, there wasn't a way to have a data source determine which static routes you were going to have. So in version one, yeah. you had static HTTP to, yes. to get data yes. from external resources, and yeah. you had the file-based routing. Right, but it was markdown file-based routing. So it was a one-to-one mapping between a, a URL and a file, whereas in Elm Pages 2.0, it's a one-to-one mapping between a route and a module. And when I say route, I mean blog slash dynamic slug is a route not blog slash hello, that's a URL, it's a page. So in 1.0, one file in your content folder, markdown file usually, was one URL. In 2.0, it's a module, page.blog.slug underscore, and that's that route, which actually gives you multiple pages. And so if you wanted to translate that to Elm Pages 2.0, so in Elm Pages 2.0, you have these page modules, very similar to uh, these page modules in Elm SPA. So if you're defining a pre-rendered route, which is what we've been talking about this whole time, and spoiler, uh, that's not the only thing. It's it's sort of in an alpha phase, but um, I, I, I do have some sort of alpha phase functionality for doing sort of serverless and on-demand routes, which we can get into. That's a whole other can of worms. All right. But let's just focus on pre-rendered yeah. <laughs> routes for now, which is the ones that are uh, the HTML is pre-rendered at build time. And so, um, so to do that, you've got so you've got a top-level page, which is just like your your main in a in a regular M application, but it's the page for each page module. So each page module exposes this top-level lowercase p page value. So if you do page.pre-render, you give it head, which lets you, um, you know, do the SEO data that we talked about. You give it data that we talked about, and that data is going to be the data source it resolves that is available before in it. And then you've got routes. So routes are the, uh, the routes that you're going to pre-render. So for a blog post, where does that route come from? So now how would you... How would you describe routes if only there was some declarative way to describe some data you needed to gather to define your routes? Yeah, if only we had a some kind of data source. Yeah, if you could like get some source of data declaratively. Yeah, so it uses the data source API. So a route is a data source of list of route params. So um, now route params are uh, the route params are completely based on your page module's name because it's a uh, file-based routing based on the name of the module. So uh, so for our example of page.blog.slug underscore, the route params are a record with lowercase slug equals string with no underscore. So those dynamic segments are translated into, into fields in your route params record. If there are no dynamic route segments, then the route params are empty, like for page.blog. So the routes, you just do a data source of of those route of a list of route params. So for example, uh, we could say routes equals data source.succeed and then a record slug equals 
hello. And now when you go to, you know, when you run the dev server on pages dev and go to go to the browser, open it up, go to slash blog slash hello, it's going to be rendering your page. If you go to slash blog slash getting started with Elm pages, it's going to give you a 404 page. And it's actually, uh, I, I put a lot of love into that 404 page to, to actually like give you feedback saying, hey, this matched this route, but it didn't match any of the routes for this type of page, the pre-rendered routes. And that's why I'm showing you a 404. Uh, and then it's going to list out the routes, which we only defined hello as a route. Yeah, uh, only the dev server. Right. Only in the dev server. But yeah, uh, I've seen a screenshot and it looks pretty cool. Again, about trying to give the best error feedback to the user. Because there's so many things that can go wrong. Like uh, what data sources are you fetching? How is it mapped? What is the resulting data source? Yes. And you don't, you know, as a user, you you don't trust the tool. If the tool doesn't give you feedback, you're not going to trust it. It doesn't matter there's no way to earn a user's trust if you don't give them feedback. You can't just say, trust me, I'm doing the right thing. Because if you're not giving them feedback, feedback creates trust. And if, if, the, uh, if the dev server is always right and has no bugs in it and is very consistent and reloads anytime configuration changes and pages change or whatever, it actually doesn't matter. If it's not giving feedback, you're still not going to trust it. So yeah, I... I I really like that as a user. I, I like using it and getting that feedback. This is how you know that Dylan actually cares about you, user. <laughs> <laughs> like what he just said, that was his, his heart. That's true. Just spreading his love. It's a love letter. That was, that was my love yep. letter to the user. Um, yeah, that's how you create routes. Now, if you wanted to create routes to match the V1 behavior of Elm Pages, what you would do is, um, so V1, there was the content folder. So you, you would create a glob pattern to, um, to match the content folder. So, so now the way the glob works, you, do, you can do, I don't want to get too bogged down by it, but you can look at the API docs for it. And um, I think the, the docs are pretty helpful, but you can do glob.match on a literal like content slash. Then you can do glob.capture to pull a piece in. So it's sort of this, um, it's very similar to the Elm parser API. Um, the parser API has, you know, pipe equals and pipe dot, and those are those correspond to glob dot match. Or a glob dot capture is the pipe equals that eats the thing, and glob dot match is equivalent to pipe dot, which ignores ignores the thing. Yeah. So anyway, you you create a glob pattern. You can extract the information you want from it. So if you just want to get the slug, you can. If you want to get the full path, you can get that. But so you get that glob pattern and you, if you were to take, uh, if you were to just capture the slug part, so that means for content slash, you're just going to match that for the, you're going to do a wild card that you capture the star part. And then the dot MD part, you're just going to match, which means you match against it, but you don't get that data. Mm -hmm. What that means is you've got the slug. Yeah. So you're building a, a glob pattern, like just the way you would type it in a terminal, like... Uh, content slash star star or star slash no, content slash star dot md and so you're building a glob and you're also saying this this here is what i'm actually caring about I, I care about the star part maybe i care about the content part maybe i don't um and that then you have a you transform that to a data source 
Exactly. Then you, yeah, then you say to data source. That's right. You can do glob.toDataSource and that kind of finalizes the glob, gives you the data source. And yeah, and again, you know, what you're describing there, that's, that's parse don't validate. So you get just the data you want rather than just saying, here's my glob, give me the list of matching files, which you just built up, but then you have to strip off the stuff afterwards again that you already sort of you had it in this nice neat format where you just could have said i want this data well you can just do that so then you can uh you can map each of those so you could do like data source dot map and then parentheses list dot map rep params and that would turn each of those into the rep params because the rep params is a a record you know it's a record constructor that uh takes a single string that's gonna uh, that's gonna be your slug so now you've just defined a, a glob data source that's going to um, uh, correspond to all of the files in the content folder. Now, you hinted at the double star, and you can do um, a recursive wildcard. And uh, so if you, if you really wanted to just exactly match the Elm Pages v1 behavior, you could use that to create a glob pattern that matches every nested file in the content folder, and and that's going to be all of your routes. And you could actually use the um, uh, so Elm Pages, the file-based router. We kind of hinted at this last time with Ryan that um, uh, Elm Pages has this sort of uh, special feature of the splat routing. So if you wanted to, if you wanted to truly have exactly the behavior that Elm Pages one had for its for its routes where the content folder is directly mirrored in the URLs in your application. That's what you would do. You would create a splat route. So you could do Elm pages add all uppercase splat. Splat is in all uppercase. The other dynamic route segments are capital, not all uppercase. So all uppercase splat, and you could do double underscore, which is going to be an optional splat, which means it's also going to match the top level root route. Okay. What does splat mean? What does it come from? There are different terms for this. Sometimes people, um, sometimes people use the term like rest params. Like in a, you know, in some programming languages, you can have a variable number of arguments, var args, and then you you get those as an array. Uh, Netlify's redirect routes use the term splat to say whatever comes after this, just capture it, give it give it to me in a list. So there are different terms that are used for it, but splat is just like, you know, uh, similar to like the, um, like, you know, ECMAScript, JavaScript calls it spread sometimes. Spread operator, dot, dot, dot. Uh, it's basically just like, eh, give me everything that, that comes after this. Yeah, and I'll, I'll handle it somehow. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll mm -hmm. slurp up all those values. So that's, um, that's what splat does is for the, um, so blog, dot slug underscore is going to match exactly one segment after blog. So if you do blog slash hello slash world, it's not going to match that. But if you did a splat route, then it's going to match. It, it, it's it's going, going to match anything. So you can, you can actually do, you could do like page dot blog dot all uppercase splat underscore. And that would match blog slash hello slash world. It wouldn't match slash blog because we did a single underscore. So it's a required splat. The double underscore is an optional. So it's the same with, um, like, for example, in the Elm Pages 2.0 docs, I have a route that is 
docs. It's page dot docs dot section underscore underscore. The reason I do that is because if you go to if you go to slash docs slash what is Elm Pages, then it shows you the what is Elm Pages docs section. But if you go to slash docs, I actually also want that to show you what is Elm Pages. So I want the same page module to be responsible for rendering and showing the metadata and everything. So I want to use the same page module for both of those routes. Whereas in the case of like page.blog, that's a totally separate page listing blogs compared to page.blog.slug underscore. So I want those to be separate page modules. So that so that's the optional double underscore at the end of a segment. Okay. So I imagine that if, if somehow um, two routes or two modules uh, cover the same route, mm-hmm. like you, yeah. uh, then you have a build failure. Well, it's actually going to just, uh, it deterministically will match routes and you can shadow routes and the more specific one will take precedence. So like, for example, if you had, you, you could have splat routes and you could also have a blog route. So if you have like a top level splat that's going to match slash about slash, you know, 2021 conference event slash whatever, you could handle all of those with splat. However, you're getting wherever those pages and their data lives. But then you could also specifically have a, um, a blog page, page.blog. And that, that takes precedence because that is a specific route that you defined. So, um, yeah, so you, so the route that you, that it parses into, and by the way, there's a, there's a route module that's generated. So, so Elm pages, just like Elm SPA, you, you get a, a generated route module that has this route custom type, and you can use that to like, uh, programmatically link to pages. So the specificity is deterministic and it doesn't depend on which routes you've defined. So like, for example, if you had a splat route and you said for that splat route, you're going to handle a route of blog, but then you also have a blog route, page.blog. Well, the the blog route is just always going to match and it doesn't depend on whether on whatever else any other routes have. So the, the the routes that you'll parse into is deterministic based on the specificity of routes. Yeah, but I, I probably should, specifically if you have two matching routes, I, sh- I should give a build error for that specific case. But but in terms of, um, like, I think this is just a helpful concept to keep in mind that the uh, what, what a route matches is not based on uh, the specific routes you have. It's based on the specificity of the page modules. So you know what a route will decode to regardless of which routes are pre-rendered or exist in your app, if that makes sense. Distilled is not yet in Elm Pages, right? It is. Oh. It's it's fully stable. So uh, I've seen you talk about the concept of distilled uh, data. Yeah. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. So in frameworks like Next.js and a lot of these um, JavaScript-based static site frameworks or Jamstack frameworks, the way that you get data to the page is you would say like in in Next.js, you'd say get static props. And then you have an async function, you make HTTP requests, you read files, you glob, you whatever, all these things that data sources do. Uh, Again, at build time? Yeah, that's right. So with Next.js, it's going to do some fancy sort of static uh, transformation of the, your code, and it actually splits apart the parts of the code that 
it's going to run on the server and that it's going to run on the client. And get static props is going to be run on the server, or uh, whether that's a build server or a serverless function or whatever it may be. And so, um, so get static props, you get all this data, and then you, you give it a serializable JSON object. And that's the data that gets sent to the page. So if you wanted to split out data, you could do whatever complex work you wanted to, to do HTTP requests and read files. And then you could just say, oh, uh, here's this prop. The number of blog posts is 5,000. But you could just say blog post count colon 5,000. Now that's the mm-hmm. data that shows up on the client bundle, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter whatever other data came before that. With the data source API in Elm Pages, it's actually keeping track of what data you depended on and just pulling in that data for all your data sources for that page, right? Yeah, and it put, puts it into the JSON file, right? Exactly. Strips down a bit, but... It strips it down, exactly. So if you are depending on some JSON fields and not others, it's going to take care of only having the data you depend on in the bundle, which is great. But sometimes, if you want to count count the number of posts, you don't want all of that data. So there, there are many, uh, many cases where, where you might want this. You know, I, uh, I've been um, building like a digital garden for myself that uses back references. And so the back references track every single, uh, every single post that refers back to the current post. And so, you know, that can, uh, now that what that means is that it's like a, it's like a glob data source to list out all the posts. And then it's uh, a follow-up, you know, data source dot, and then for each of those, uh, do a data source dot file dot, and then read the file. If I were to just let that data uh, show up in the bundle, then it would be pulling in 50 plus pages of Markdown files or however large the, the number of files grows to, which is not good. And it's not, not needed because all I need is I need to know for each page, does it refer back to this page? Or actually, I don't even need to know that. I just need a list of pages that refer back. So it could be three, three strings, a list of three strings rather than 50 markdown files with all of their contents. So with the, uh, the distill API, that's, that's what that's for. And it's the distill API lets you work in more of this way that, that like Next.js get static props works, where you just say, here's the data, make sure this data is there for the page to render with. And so distill, so I made like a couple of distill helpers Distill codec and distill serialize codec. And those are for uh, Minibills codec package and the ser- and uh, Martin Stewart's serialize uh, package, Elm Serialize. And, you know, the, the reason they're codecs is because the way distill works is you need to teach the data source how to turn that into some JSON that it's going to include in the JSON for mm-hmm. that page. So you need to encode it. You need to teach it how to encode it to put it into the JSON file, and you need to teach it how to decode it to take it out of the JSON file. It turns out codecs are really good for that, although actually it doesn't really matter because it's always going to encode it and run the decoder. So you're actually never getting the data before it went through the encode-decode cycle. So if you did it in a non-reversible codec fashion, it actually doesn't matter because you're you're not going to see the data 
without being encoded and decoded, whether it's in the dev server or the build or whatever. That's probably what you want in most cases. So, um, But you can just use the low-level distill if you want to provide a function to encode to JSON and a function to decode to JSON for whatever reason. But one really cool thing about distill is that, so for one thing, uh, you know, if you wanted to get that list of back references, you could do you know, distill codec or distill serialized code. So it's, you know, data source dot distill codec or data source dot distill serialized codec. And then uh, you give it a unique key. So we could say like back references in this case. And then that's just a string. And then we give it a codec. Since the the data source that we arrived at in the chain up until this point was a list of string, it was data source list of string, then we just need a codec of type list of string. So we could just say codec.list, codec.string, or serialized.list, serialized.string, depending on which package you want to use there. And that's it. Now it is, now it's going to strip down just that data to a list of strings. So if you look in your JSON for that page, that's what you'll see. Also, uh, any computation that came before that is not performed in the client side in the browser. It's only done in the build step, which is also cool. So if you wanted to compute some Fibonacci number, and then distill that into an int, you could do that. And it wouldn't actually run the Fibonacci code in the browser. So that opens up some use cases, and it's a good thing to have in your toolkit. So if, you, if you're noticing large JSON files, that, that's what you'd want to reach for. And I'm thinking about ways to, to give some, some nice feedback to tell you if your JSON files are getting large, just to, as a feedback mechanism. So I might do that in the dev ser server and or the build command. That'd be cool. Yeah. yeah. So um, I've asked this question in during the first episode also, uh, but when would it make sense for someone to choose Elm pages over a regular Elm project? I think it's worth mm -hmm. readdressing this question. I don't know if your answer yeah. changed. Well, certainly uh, the, the things that you can do with Elm pages 2.0 are um, a lot more flexible. And it's, it's just generally become more mature. But I mean, if you're not, if you have no use in pre-rendering pages, then, you know, why would you pre-render pages? If you, if you're not using data sources, then why would you use Elm pages? You know, that, that's sort of my thinking on it is like, if you're like, oh, wow, data sources, that's great. Now I can have this data there and um, I can think about this this data being there for this page without having to go through the whole update message cycle and all of that and it's declarative data and that that abstraction works really well for this use case, then Elm pages might be a good fit. If if it's like, I, I don't really need this data source thing, then what, Then why are you using Elm pages? That's that's sort of my rule of thumb. Yeah. If, if, so if you don't have any data to pre-render, yeah. you use a regular Elm application. Yeah. Or Elm SPA might be a great fit. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, you know, that that's going to tend to be like content sites. And now I, I really do believe that um, content sites deserve good social previews. That's just something I, I believe. Like, I, to me, it's super anticlimactic if if I put some love into like writing a blog post or something and then share it on Twitter and it's like incrementalelm.com slash blog slash whatever. Can you, can you please stop pointing fingers at me? Please. <laughs> <laughs> I want the love I put into the posts to be reflected in like a polished looking social preview and same for a marketing page or a restaurant 
you know, restaurant menu, you know, site or a film festival site or whatever it might be like these sort of um, content based sites, I, I think deserve nice previews. And also like, I think you can leverage like Elm pages at its core is giving you this tool for, for pulling in this data into nice typed Elm data that you can use on your pages and like, I just think Elm is a very good tool for that. Like Elm has an incredible type system. It's so nice, like transforming data and passing data around and parsing data, right? That's like, that's what's amazing about Elm. Like any, like even somebody who's not sold on Elm is like, yeah, I really like doing that sort of thing with Elm. You know, the, you hear that sometimes and like, well, that's sort of, what what data sources are really good at is letting you use data that way. Like there's no GraphQL abstraction because we've got something much better than a local GraphQL database for getting files and stuff. We've got Elm and Elm's type system and Elm's feedback mechanisms. So I'd much rather use that. Now, that said, I, I absolutely use GraphQL and Elm GraphQL to like fetch data from CMSs like, uh, like Sanity or Contentful that expose GraphQL. APIs because why not? Do you have a GraphQL data source? Yeah. Uh, well, um, so uh, Elm GraphQL uses like vanilla JSON decoders, not optimized decoders, and you can use that with um, with Elm with Elm Pages. Um, you just have to use these unoptimized requests. But they are optimized in, in a different way, right? Exactly right. Mm. Yes, exactly because GraphQL already sort of does this data splitting by returning exactly the data you requested so it would it would be unnecessary for that so yeah okay yeah so that works quite nicely so i i can i'll share a little link to like a snippet that i have for just performing and decoding that using a, a, a data source but it, it works works very nicely but why but why would you use an abstraction like that i, th I think that you know frameworks like gatsby.js for example use this graphql abstraction because it's a typed way of getting data. But Elm, I couldn't ask for a better way of dealing with mm -hmm. types data than Elm. So yeah. one of the principles of Elm pages is to let Elm shine. And so anyway, if you, uh, if you find that declaratively describing the data that your page depends on and transforming that and having it available on page load is a useful abstraction, then chances are Elm pages will probably be a pretty good fit. Yeah. Uh, I think just marketing sites in general, if you if you want to reuse like the same uh, UI elements, uh, yeah. can be a good fit, even if you don't have any content, because mm -hmm. at least you'll get um, uh, pre-rendering and therefore better SEO mm -hmm. metrics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's useful, even if you don't have any con data sources to to fetch from. You can yeah do uh, data source that succeed to have a, to have static. Data mm -hmm. sources, right? Yeah, or just uh, hard code the data into your views or whatever it might be. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's true. That's true. Right. But if you don't need pre-rendering or data sources, then probably not what you need. Yeah. But yeah, I, I remember that we talked at one of my previous company about using Elm, and one of the concerns was SEO. Mm. So Elm Pages somehow solves that. Yeah. Yeah, like you don't need SEO. You know, you you. Uh, if it's like internal user authenticated pages, no, yeah, yeah, then you don't need it. That's not going to help you out there. So SEO is, you know, I mean, one one rule of thumb that people sometimes use for Jamstack sites being a good candidate for Jamstack is 
do do people see the same content when they go to the page? And you can sort of enhance it with some user-specific content if somebody's logged in, but they're seeing an e-commerce page and they can see their shopping cart items, but otherwise it's the same exact page for everybody and has the same inventory for everybody or whatever it may be. And, and those things really need to have SEO and you want to have good first paint times as well. Okay, I, I think it's time to to close. So Elm Pages is a project that takes data sources of any sort and builds static uh, HTML files, RSS feeds, uh, CSS files, JavaScript files, and therefore Elm applications uh, that you deploy to a CDN. And if at some, if, if at any point you have uh, something that wasn't ex as expected, you get a build error. And during the Elm application, you still have Elm for all the niceties that it has. Is that a okay summary? I'd say so. Yeah, all that's right. a great summary. Now, there are several things we didn't get to touch on today. So we might need to do an Elm Pages 2.0 Part 2 episode uh, just to <laughs> bump up our uh, percentage of downloads for Elm Pages related <laughs> episodes a little bit. But um, <laughs> Take we that didn't... to Elm UI. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we didn't talk about sort of a, uh, the, the API routes and you know file generation part of it. We didn't talk yeah. about serverless and on-demand, which is more alpha. So maybe when that stabilizes, we can revisit that. But yeah, that uh, that's really the heart of Elm Pages. I think we covered it pretty well. And you you put a lot of effort and love into the dev experience also. We didn't talk too much about it, but from what I can see without having tried it too much, it, it really looks like you put a lot of love into that. So that's, thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's true. I... Um, I'm really pleased with the architecture. In fact, like the whole exploration of Elm Pages 2.0 began with trying to, um, uh, Seb Ferno, who's been like uh, really awesome, just like discussing all these ideas of directions Elm Pages can go with me, um, was sort of saying like, Hey, I wonder if Elm Pages could do serverless rendering. I think that's where the Elm Pages 2.0 ex exploration started because that ended up being a giant nerd snipe which uh i i welcome it was incredible and uh i ended up building that and saying like oh you actually can and actually now that i have this mechanism for give me a single page and i will render that page uh instead of doing like full builds and rendering everything well hey that's really cool for a dev server because we can pre-render pages in the dev server and we can do everything in this sort of just-in-time fashion rather than uh, so, you know, in, in the style of tools like Vite and Snowpack, just very rapidly doing the minimum amount of work to give you hot reloads and stuff like that. And so anyway, yeah, the the, the architecture um, I'm very pleased with and, and I've tried to make the performance really noticeably fast and it's, it's feeling really nice to work with. All right. So how do people get started with the Helm pages? Uh, check out the docs. There's a fresh doc site for 2.0 and join the Elm pages channel on Slack. I'm always happy to answer questions there. Also, I'll link to some uh, sites using Elm Pages 2.0 and some code bases. Uh, I haven't upgraded uh, Elm Radio to 2.0 yet, but I will soon. But Incremental Elm and the Elm Pages doc site are in 2.0. So there's, those are some code bases you can take a look at too. What is the link for the Elm Pages documentation? Well, assuming that it's published uh, by the time this episode goes live, 
Uh, that would it be elm-pages.com slash docs. All right. Well, All right. I, I, I still have plenty of questions. Like I know, but I think we're out of time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. I think. Uh, well, let's let's revisit this when uh, when we've got some new stuff to talk about here. That sounds good. All right. Well, until until next time. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>